0: Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Babies, you may want to take advantage of our nursery as well. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, as we continue our study on the Lord's Prayer. It's no secret that you all, if you've been around me long enough, know that um, I love the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It's a classic, every Christian should take time to at least read it. You can read it in the Old English, or you can read it in updated versions, but it's a glorious story. And here's the story of the Pilgrim's Progress. It starts out with the main character, Christian. And Christian is dressed in rags. He's got this huge backpack on his back that's weighing him down with sin. And he begins to read the Bible, and he comes to a conclusion He comes to a conclusion that he is living in the city of destruction. An impending judgment is coming. And he wants to know, how can I escape the city of destruction and go to the celestial city heaven? Because this weight of sin is so so burdensome on my back. And so a man named Evangelist comes to him and says, here's the way to get the burden off your back. You've got to go to the wicket gate and from there you will find Mount Calvary. And that's how you can get rid of the burden and escape the wrath to come. And so Christian starts out on his journey. And one of the first obstacles he faces on his journey is he, he gets into a swamp called Despond. And as he's in this swamp, he begins to sink deeper and deeper. The backpack begins to weigh him down. He's struggling for dear life. He's muddy. He's swampy. He's stinky. He's about to go under. And then he hears a voice on the shore. It's a man named Help. And Help says, why are you in the swamp, Christian? And Christian said, because I was fearful and I was guilty and my sin was weighing me down. And help gets him out of the swamp and encourages him on his way to the wicked gate, and thus the celestial city. Now, what does this show us about the Christian life? It tells us that before we're saved, we are all burdened by sin. We are all in a swamp of sin. It weighs us down. We're in a swamp of fear. We're in a swamp of guilt. No matter what we try to do, we can't get ourselves out of it. We sink deeper and deeper into sin until help comes. And help comes in the gospel of grace. And so when God saves you by grace, He reaches out and takes you out of the miry swamp. He takes you out of the the sewage and He puts you on solid ground Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we read it earlier, says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We we know that, right? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. For our initial salvation, we're saved by grace, not by anything that we do. But here's the problem in the Christian life. Here's the struggle. We are saved by grace. But every single day, we need grace. Daily supplies of grace upon grace in order to live the Christian life. Yes, we're saved by grace, but we live the Christian life by grace. And any time that we try to rely upon our own resources We try to rely upon pride, self-sufficiency, things that we can do, things that we can manufacture, things that we can do to try to make things work. We just keep going deeper and deeper into that swamp. We go back into that swamp. We get mired down in that swamp. We become dirty. We become soiled. And then we get right back into that situation where we're stuck. Now, the question I've got to ask you is, what does this have to do with prayer? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's see what Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start back in verse 8 and we're going to read through verse 13. Matthew 6, 8 through 13. Jesus says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And some translations have, for yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Last week we looked at the first three requests in the Lord's Prayer. And what we, decided, what we discovered was that these are God-centered prayers, not self-centered prayers. And the first request was, it was a passionate cry for God's name to be hallowed. God's name to be revered. God's name to be glorified, not only just in our lives, but around the whole world. We want God's name to be preeminent. That was the first request. The second request was that God's kingdom would come, that God would save people out of the kingdom of darkness, that the gospel would advance, and that this was a missionary prayer for God to do a great work of, of grace and liberating people that are in the kingdom of darkness, and they would surrender to the true king, Jesus. And then it, the third request is, let your will be done. It was talking about being obedient to God's will, that we would be obedient quickly and and fervently and consistently in our lives to the will of God. And those were thoroughly God-centered. That's how the prayer starts. Before we begin to ask for things, it's very God-centered. But now we shift to the second three requests, requests four, five, and six, and now we begin to shift to more personal praying that is focused upon us. Now, I'm not going to deny that these are focused upon us and these are things that we pray for that are related to our personal lives, but the prayer starts with God's glory, God's kingdom, God's will before we get down to talking about us. And so, here's the main idea of the second set of requests in verses 11 through 13, Request 4, 5, and 6. Here's the main point. Here's the main idea of these requests. We must pray to rely upon the sufficiency of the Father's grace. We must pray to rely upon the sufficiency of the Father's grace. Now, these these second set of requests really deal with a lot of major issues in our lives. Our our material needs, our physical needs, our need for forgiveness, relational, interpersonal relationships, how, how we handle temptation all of these different things, vital areas of our lives that we need to rely upon, the sufficiency of grace. These are not requests for us to, to go out in our own power and go out in our own strength and try to live the Christian life in our own power. These are requests for daily expressions, daily supplies of God's sufficient grace to live the Christian life. So let's look at these requests. Requests 4, 5, and 6. And so here's request number four. Now, last week, if you missed it, you can go back and listen online, but we looked at request one, two, and three. Here's request number four. Father, please help me to be dependent. Look at verse 11. Give us this day, this day, our daily bread. It comes from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, where the writer says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. Father, feed me with food that is needful for me. Father, provide for me my daily bread. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean literally bread. It's talking about our physical needs, the daily needs that we have. Remember how God provided daily for the Israelites in the wilderness with manna every day? Just for that day in Exodus 16.4 Then the Lord said to Moses Behold I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Did God give them manna for tomorrow? He gave them manna for today. Now you may be asking yourselves a question: Why pray, and why ask God to meet my daily needs if He already knows everything anyway? Are we telling God something He doesn't know? For example, when you give God a request, has God up in heaven been like, "Oh wow, I'm surprised"? I did not know that. Thanks for informing me, human. That was not on my radar screen. You took me totally off guard. Is that what God's doing up in heaven? No. Go back and look at verse 8. It's kind of paradoxical, but in verse 8, it says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God already knows what you need, so why ask Him? If God knows what you need, then, then I shouldn't have to ask Him because He already knows. Then why does Jesus tell us to pray and ask? Well, here's the issue. You don't pray to inform God of what you need. You pray to show your dependence upon God. You pray to cultivate that intimacy with God. You pray to cultivate that, that fellowship, that sweetness with a sovereign God. We pray because it's the lifeblood of who we are. We pray to develop the relationship, the intimacy, the fellowship, the dependence. You see, we have a major problem in America. I don't know if you know what this major problem is. In America... It's called affluence. It's called comfort. You know, oftentimes we don't pray for our daily bread because we don't really think we, need, we have needs for daily bread. We're pretty self-sufficient. We're not in some third world country like when we go to India, which we're going to this summer and, and to get water, the women are going to have to walk a mile down to the, to the well and get water and put it in a pot and put it on their head and carry it back two or three times a day. You can go across the street to Walmart and find multiple different flavors of water. We do not have these desperate needs in America. We are very self-sufficient here. We are very content and comfortable The Pew Research Center did a study on how affluent Americans are compared to the rest of the world. They did a study of 111 countries that account for almost 90% of the world population. Now, the middle class of the world, you want to know what the middle class of the world is? For a family of four, you're middle class if you make $21,000 a year. Now, in the United States, 50% of Americans are high income by global standards. 32% of Americans are upper middle class. In other words, 9 out of 10 Americans have a standard of living higher than the rest of the world. Now, there is poverty in America. I'm not downplaying the fact that there's poverty, but even those who are at the poverty level in America are still at a higher level than most of the world. Back in 2011, the poverty level in America was $23,000 for a family of four. So if you made $23,000 a year for a family of four, you're still higher than the rest of the world. Here's the kicker that I found out. 71% of the world lives on less than $10 a day, which means that most people in the world make about $4,000 a year. That's what they live on, $4,000 a year. But you see, in America, we're self-sufficient. We're affluent. We don't think we have daily needs, except for when the big things happen. I'll call on God when the big things happen. I'll call on God when there's an emergency. But does Jesus say, ask for those big emergency things? He says, Father, give us this day our daily needs. Bread. What we need today. The reason we don't pray for daily bread is because we don't think we need daily bread because we're pretty sufficient to produce our daily bread. Kevin DeYoung has said this. He was one of the speakers at the conference I was at last week in one of his books. He says, prayerlessness is an expression of our meager confidence in God's ability to provide and of our strong confidence in our ability to take care of ourselves without God's God knows what we need. God knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows when a sparrow falls out of a tree. And notice what Jesus teaches us to pray for. It's not an ostentatious prayer. He doesn't say, give us this day our daily luxuries. Give us this day everything I want. What does he say? Give us this day our daily bread. You see, what Jesus is telling us is that we come with a childlike faith for God to give us what we need. A dependence upon what we need. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I find it interesting that Jesus tells us, give us this day. He doesn't say, pray, give me my daily bread. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying individually, but remember, this is a corporate prayer to our Father. Give us. Are you praying for others around you for their daily bread? Are you so privatized and individualized and you're praying that it's all about me and my wants and what I want and, and everything? I want what's coming to me, or is it, Father, give us. Collectively, the body of Christ, uh, give us our daily daily needs. Are you humble? Or are you self-sufficient? Are you trusting in your own resources, your own abilities? Are you asking God for what you want but not what you need? Have you ever thought about why Jesus says ask for daily bread? Daily bread. What would happen if God gave you all of the blessings in one lump sum? What do you think you and I would probably do? We'd squander it, or we'd go about our merry way and forget about God. So God knows better that he doesn't give it to us in one big lump sum. He gives it to us for today, because that's what we need for today. You know, I was doing some research this past week when I was thinking about this, about Powerball Lottery, the Powerball people that win the lottery. And you know, there's two ways you can take your money in in the winnings. You can take it in one big lump sum, right? Or you can take it in installments. And it's interesting to see how people decide to take their their Powerball winnings. And so three major universities back in 2011 conducted a study to to see if somebody wins the Powerball or wins the lotto, does it improve their financial um, setting, their, their financial improvement? And what they found was that almost, um, they they did 35,000 winners in the Florida lottery over a nine-year span. And what they found out was that seven in ten winners of the lottery squandered their earnings, and most of them filed bankruptcy, winning the lottery. And the research also showed overwhelmingly that those who took it in a lump sum, almost invariably, filed bankruptcy. So God knows our hearts. And God knows if he gives us blessing upon blessing in one big lump sum, we would squander it just like a Powerball winning. We would forget about him, and we would not rely upon him. And so that's why it's a daily supply of grace. And so the prayer really is, Father, help me to be dependent. Help me not to try to fashion things on my own. Help me not to try to to work out my own uh, resources. God, I'm coming to you in a posture of dependence. Because every good and perfect gift comes from you. I need a daily expression of of bread for today. So that's request number four. Lord, Father, help me to be dependent. Here's request number five. Father, please help me to be repentant. Notice verse 12. Forgive us our debts as as, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debt. Lord, forgive me. Now, you may be asking a question. If Jesus died on the cross for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, why do you have to ask him to forgive you? Isn't it already forgiven? Aren't your sins already forgiven? Why are you asking Jesus to forgive you? Well, let me give you some, a, a few truths that you need to understand. First of all, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future, when he died on the cross. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace. We have forgiveness. Also, When Christ saves us, when you trust in Him for salvation and His righteousness is credited to you and your sins are credited to Him, we stand in a permanent position of being declared um, not guilty. We're in a permanent state of being forgiven. Paul tells us in Romans 8.1, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're forgiven. You're secure in your salvation. But here's the issue, and you guys know this by experience. You see, in justification, the penalty of sin was canceled. You're no longer under its penalty to be penalized or held accountable or held guilty. In regeneration, the power of sin was canceled. So you're no longer under its bondage. You're no longer under its, under its slavery. But here's the reality. In your daily Christian life, you and I succumb to the pollution of sin. It dirties us. The pollution, the presence of sin. And so what Jesus is asking us here, is, is telling us to do, is to pray for the, the removal of that pollution of sin that's in our lives because we sin. James 3.2 says this, We all stumble in many ways. We all sin. We stumble in many different ways. And when we sin, we still grieve the Holy Spirit. When we sin, it's still an offense to a holy God. When we sin, we still are displeasing to our Heavenly Father. When we sin, it, it, it's a pollution. Now let me give you an illustration to make sure this is very clear. Okay, my son Aiden is my son. That's never going to change. He's my son by birth. He's my son no matter what happens. It's a permanent relationship between father and son. Sean Cole, Aiden Cole, father, son, it will not change. It's a relationship that's bound by blood because he's my son. But let's say Aiden goes off to college, and he um, basically says, Dad, I I forget you, forget Mom. Uh, He's going to rebel. I don't think he'll do this, but let's say he rebels. Let's say that he totally um, goes off the deep end. He says, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you. I, I, I hate you. I'm totally cursing you. I'm cutting all things off. Now, does he cease to be my son if he says that? No, he's still my son, right, by birth. But is the intimacy and the fellowship between me and Aiden going to be any good? No. Here's the same thing with the Father in heaven. Your Father in heaven is your Father. And when He adopts you, that relationship does not change. It's a permanent relationship between Father and child. But when you sin, that intimacy is affected, that Fellowship is affected. And you know this. You know this when you sin. I I bet you I could, I'm not going to have a confession time here, but all of you by experience know that when you sin, it puts you further and further away in your intimacy with the Father. You don't want to pray. You want to run away. You, you have all these feelings of not wanting to, to, to come to Him. And so Jesus is saying what we need to be doing here is praying for forgiveness of that pollution of sin that, that, that affects the intimacy with the Father. Not the relationship, but the intimacy. Listen to what 1 John 1, through 8-9 says. If we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So really what this prayer is is that we would have a soft, repentant heart towards God that we want to keep short accounts with God. We want to make sure that we keep short accounts with God because of the intimacy, the fellowship, But now I want you to notice what Jesus attaches to this in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Now, does this mean that if you don't forgive other people, you're not forgiven? We've just established that that can't be the case because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that pure, true, authentic evidence that you've been forgiven, that you've been saved, is that you have a, heart, a soft heart towards forgiving others. True evidence that you've been forgiven is that you have a willingness to forgive others. Let me give you an example of this, okay? So turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Keep your finger in Matthew 6. Jesus gives an illustration of this in Matthew 18, a perfect illustration of what he's talking about here. Again, you're saved, you're forgiven. Okay, so here's the point. If somehow you could lose your salvation if you forget to forgive somebody, probably everybody here would lose their salvation. And we know that's not true. It's not the fact that you lose your salvation if you don't forgive other people. The point is, you forgive other people as evidence that you have been forgiven in salvation. Jesus tells us, Matthew 18, verse 21, it's the parable of the unforgiving servant. So let's just read this parable and I'll kind of explain it. But look at the illustration that Jesus gives us here. Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times? Peter's thinking, okay, let me me do the math here. Three times is really good. I'll multiply it by two to make it really good. I'll double it and I'll add one for good measure. I'll make a really good biblical number here. Seven times, Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, does that mean that when you get to prayer 49 or forgiveness 49 and you you, you've reached your limit no here's the point he tells a parable verse 23 therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants when he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him about a million dollars that's what 10,000 talents is about a million dollars and since he could not pay his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to me made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. I'll pay you the millions of dollars back. He probably couldn't in that day and age. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. He's been forgiven millions of dollars because simply the master was was willing to forgive him. He didn't didn't owe it to him. He didn't deserve it. He, He forgave him. But look what happened. Verse 28. When the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a couple hundred bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. You owe, me 50, you owe me 50 bucks or 500 bucks. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, millions of dollars, because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, whom you only owed you maybe a couple hundred dollars, as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts." So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's the point. Those who've been forgiven much, forgive much because your heart's been changed by grace. What is forgiveness? Is forgiveness simply a feeling or is it a decision? I think it's both. It starts with a somewhat of a feeling, but ultimately... Forgiveness is a decision to actually forgive somebody, to not take revenge upon somebody, to not become bitter. Romans twelve nine says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, so here's the second, or actually the fourth request here. Actually, the fifth request. Let me get my numbers wrong. It's a prayer for repentance, to be repentant. A repentant heart towards God which leads to a repentant heart towards other, a soft heart towards God, which leads to a soft heart towards others, that you're always seeking to be repentant. You're always seeking to confess sin. You're always seeking to, 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 to make short accounts with God. You have a soft heart towards God, and you have a soft heart towards other. That's what the prayer is. Lord, give me a soft heart towards you and a soft heart towards other that's evidenced in, in forgiveness, experiencing that forgiveness, and then giving that forgiveness. So here's request number six. So the first one, Lord, help me to be dependent. The second one, Father, help me to be repentant. Here's the, the last request Father, help me to be vigilant. Vigilant. Verse 13, the last request Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this is very difficult. And I had to do a lot of study because at first glance, it makes it sound like, does, does God lead us into temptation? Are we asking God to not do something that he does? And we have to look at James chapter 1, 13 and 14. This is what James 1, 13 and 14. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I think what Jesus is, is asking us to pray here is really a prayer for protection or vigilance against evil in all forms. Deliver us from evil. Now, some of your translations may deliver us from the evil one, talking about Satan. There's a, there's a debate as far as which way you take it. Is it evil? Is it the evil one? I come down on the fact that it's evil. All manner of evil. It includes Satan, but guess what? Do you have evil in your heart? Yes. Is the world evil? Yes. Do you know there's an unholy trinity? You ever heard of the unholy trinity? The world, the flesh, and the devil? These three enemies will come at you non-stop. And so really this this last request here is prayer for vigilance and future sins. Now, the one we just looked at was asking forgiveness for sins that you'd already committed. This one is, God, prevent me from committing future sins. God, I don't want to give in to temptation. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to give in to the, to the darts of the devil. I don't want to give in to the desires of my flesh. I don't want to follow the ways of the, of the world. I, I want to be vigilant. I want to be watchful. You see, here's the problem, and I, and I think all of us can deal with this. Don't we at times have an overconfidence in our ability to handle evil? I can handle it. And the devil, he's, I mean, he's kind of a guy with a pitchfork over there, but he doesn't really bother me. My flesh, I can, I can handle it. The world, I can handle we, we get overconfident in this spiritual warfare, but let me just tell you this. The devil never sleeps, your flesh never sleeps, and the world never sleeps. So you better never sleep as well, because they will come at you. Back in 2013, William Rockefeller made the news when a train barreling down the tracks in the Bronx in New York at 82 miles per hour killed four passengers and injured 75. Why did the train crash? Anybody remember? He fell asleep at the wheel. Basically, he lost control because he fell asleep which got me to think about some things. I went back and I did some research. Some of the world's worst disasters can be traced back to somebody falling asleep on the job. Let me give you an example. Chernobyl in the Ukraine. It was attributed to operators who fell asleep because they were sleep-deprived, working 13-hour straight shifts. Three-mile island incident in Pennsylvania in 1979 was also attributed to people falling asleep on the job. The Space Shuttle Challenger explosion in 1986 was attributed to NASA officials falling asleep on the job. And even the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989 was attributed to the third mate falling asleep at the wheel. Falling asleep at the wheel causes some disasters, does it not? Falling asleep at the wheel of your spiritual life will have just as destructive, if not more, disasters. This is a prayer to not fall asleep in the battle with sin. Listen to what Jesus prayed the night he was betrayed. Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, this prayer is a desire of your heart to the Lord to say, God, God, I do not want to break this fellowship with you by sinning. Think about the logic and the progression of this prayer. If you're praying the Lord's Prayer, think about where we've come so far. Father, I want your name to be hallowed. Father, I want your name to be glorified. Father, I want your, your kingdom to come in my life. I want your kingly rule. I want your rule and reign. I want to be doing your will, Father. I want to be obedient. And Father, I need you daily for my daily bread. And Father, I know I've sinned in the past and I'm experiencing that sweet forgiveness that comes when I, when I call out to you for forgiveness. I don't want to do anything to disrupt this sweetness that I have with you by committing future sins. So Lord, please help me. Please help me to be vigilant. Please help me to be watchful. I don't want to fall into temptation. Sometimes we have a false security and our own ability to handle temptation, do we not? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You can escape temptation. But how do you escape temptation? Is it in your own power? No, it's by prayer. Asking God to help you. Asking God to, give, to make you vigilant, make you watchful, make you submissive. In this prayer, what we're really doing is we're acknowledging that we're weak. We're acknowledging that in our, the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're acknowledging to God, listen God, I'm weak. I'm frail, as we sang earlier. I don't know if I can handle these things that are coming at me and I dare not walk out the door in my own strength because there's a war waging between the world, the flesh, and the devil and they want my soul. And so, Father, I don't want to walk out there in my own self-confidence. I am utterly dependent upon grace upon grace for this moment, this day, to not fall in temptation. So please, would you help me have a soft heart towards you? It's what James 4, 7 says. Submit yourselves to God resist the devil and he will flee from you you see that the order there that James says you submit yourself to God and then you resist the devil and he will flee from you it's a prayer to say God I'm, I'm submitting to you I'm asking for your help I, I need this grace so that I don't fall into temptation so these last requests are expressions of grace Father, I need your grace for today's needs to be dependent. I I need to be dependent today. Father, I need your grace today to be repentant and forgiving and open-hearted. Father, I need your grace today to be vigilant so I don't fall into temptation. I need your grace. Now let's deal with the ending. The ESV does not have it. Most translations, I think, the only translation that may have it is the King James Version. And you may find a footnote in your Bible that say some of the manuscripts add for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen. Why do most translations not put it in the Bible? Because most scholars will tell you that most of the reliable and ancient manuscripts did not include that ending. Also, if you look at Luke chapter 11, where you see Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, he does not include that. So should it be in there? That's up for debate. But I still think it's an appropriate way for us to end the prayer. It's an appropriate way to end the prayer, because we see an example of this ending in the Old Testament. In First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, you see kind of a pattern that, that David prayed when they were dedicating the temple. First Chronicles 29:11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. So I think it's an appropriate way, even though it may not be in some of the oldest reliable manuscripts, I still think it's an appropriate way to end the Lord's Prayer because it circles us back around to being God-centered. Okay, you've poured out your heart to God. You've asked for those daily needs. You've spent time in confession and repentance. You're asking for help to not sin as you live the day. And then you circle your mind and your heart and your soul back to it's about you, Father. It's your glory. It's your kingdom. It's your power. It's your rule. It's your reign. It's, it's your sovereignty. I'm coming back to utter dependence upon you as, as my Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So let me just ask you a simple question. For the past three weeks, we've looked at the Lord's Prayer. Is this how you pray? Number one, the address. The address our Father in heaven. Do you approach God as your heavenly Father, your good Father? Do you have intimacy with the Father? Do you draw near to Him as a good and gracious Father? But He's also in heaven. He's sovereign. He's majestic. He's He's powerful. You're, You're coming into His holy presence. The first three requests. Are your prayers thoroughly God-centered? Are they focused upon His name, His glory, His fame, His power, His kingdom, His will? Are you starting there with the God-sized vision of what to be praying for? Not so self-centered. And then the last three requests we've looked at, are you praying for daily supplies of the sufficiency of God's grace? Lord, help me to be dependent upon your grace today. Lord, help me to be repentant today. Lord, help me to be vigilant today. And then are you ending it all up, going back to worship? Bind us the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Many of you probably have never heard of Pastor Ron Dunn at MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church in Irving, Texas. At my former church, the minister of music that I served with, Jamil Badri, was on staff at MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church in the early 70s. From 1970 to 1975, this Southern Baptist Church experienced a full-blown revival. And Jamil would tell about how Ron Dunn, at those early days Hold himself up in his church office, in his study, for a week. He prayed and fasted for a week. He was on his face for a week, and he was praying for revival. And on the very last Sunday of 1971, actually of 1970, God broke out with a revival. It lasted five years, and an an enormous prayer and, and a prayer ministry came from that what I want to do because I found it so encouraging I want you to I want to read the letter that pastor Ron Dunn wrote to his church in 1972 on the two-year anniversary of this revival sometimes it's interesting to go back and read what pastors write to their churches in history this is recent history this is not Jonathan Edwards this is recent history here's what he wrote to his church On the last Sunday in April 1970, God moved into our midst with a power that can only be described as earthquake power. A power that transformed the countenance and composure of our church. Shaken with an overwhelming awareness of God's presence. Without a doubt, the greatest thing that's happened is this. Jesus has become real. God is no longer something we pray at. But a father we pray to. The actuality of the indwelling spirit has become a reality. Milkshake religion has become an earthquake experience. Shaken with unbroken unity and harmony. One heart and one soul. The fiery heart of the Holy Spirit melted differences and welded hearts together in a loving fellowship that grows sweeter each time we meet to worship. Shaken with supernatural power for living and witnessing. God has consistently done exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We've seen things happen that two years ago we would have never believed. People who never witnessed before found themselves talking about Jesus wherever they went. Sinful habits and attitudes have been conquered through the power of the Holy Spirit. We've come to know that if it isn't supernatural, it's superficial. Shaken with overflowing liberality. Until revival came, our church had never met a budget in its history. Then the Holy Spirit revealed a fixed law of heaven. When a man's lordship is right, his stewardship will be right. The issue isn't, will you tithe, but is Jesus Lord? With no budget drives or pledge campaigns of any sort, we've met our budget and finished the year with no unpaid bills and have tripled our giving to world missions. Shaken with the knowledge that it is God's doing. What has happened in the past two years, the increased growth in every single area of church life is not, I repeat, is not the result of hard work, clever programs, keen administration, intelligent leadership. It is the result of God's Spirit breathing new life into these old bones. And nobody knows this better than this pastor. God forbid that we should ever glory in any of these things. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. Revival can't be forced. Revival cannot be coerced. It is God's divine prerogative if he wants to visit a church. And he wants to pour out his spirit upon a church. And he wants to do something unique in a church. We can't force his hand, but here's one thing we can sure do we can pray for it. We can pray for it. We can beg God to do it. We can get on our faces like Ron Dunn did and for a week pray that God would pour out his spirit. We can become a house of prayer. We can pray like we've never prayed before. And if God so sees fit to do something extraordinary, It will not be because we were clever or because we were good or because we did a marketing campaign. It will simply be because he's a sovereign God and decided to do it and we received a blessing that we never expected we'd receive. So I'm going to ask us to do something at the end of this Lord's Prayer. I'm going to ask us to pray. So I'm going to ask you if you're physically able to get on your knees and kneel before our Father. And I want us to pray. I want us to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And some of you may be getting hungry, and some of you may be looking about what time things are going, and I just want to say this. Prayer is the most important thing we can do. And we may spend just a few minutes longer this morning doing it, but I think it's important. So the first thing I want us to do as a congregation is just silently where you are, would you just spend just a few moments in praise to your heavenly Father, our Father in heaven. Would you just spend a few moments before your Father in heaven? Spend some time just asking him desperately that his name would be hallowed. His name be holy in my life, in our church, in our nation, in the world. Would you spend some time asking that his kingdom would come? And as we think about this, maybe there's somebody in your life that you know that's not a believer, that's not a Christian. Would you pray for their salvation? Would you pray for revival? Would you pray for God's power to break through lostness as we pray for his kingdom to come? Now let's spend some time asking for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ask God to give you the strength to obey his will. you're facing some desperate needs, They could be physical, they could be emotional, they could be financial. Spend some time asking God to give you your daily bread. Would you spend some time in confession, asking God to forgive you of the pollution of sin in your life and that you would have a soft heart towards Him and towards others? Then would you pray for vigilance, ask God to help you in areas of your weakness as you live life this week, that you would not fall into temptation, but that He would protect you in a few seconds, praising Him for His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Just spend some closing time in praise. We want to be a praying people. Father, we want to be a people that are on our knees, not just in a worship service, but Lord, every day we're on our knees before You in desperation, that we would need daily supplies of Your grace daily supplies of your power that, Lord, it would be about your kingdom and your glory and your name. And, Father, I do pray specifically for those in this room today in our church family that have real needs, Lord. Would you meet those needs in only the way that you can, Lord? Would you give them hope? Would you give them encouragement this day? Would you give them what they need this day, Lord? Tomorrow has enough worries of its own, but Lord, what, what today they need, would you give them the daily bread today? And Lord, there may be some that are struggling with sin, sin patterns in their life, unrepentance. Lord, would you show them, Holy Spirit, would you grant to them repentance, that they would repent and they would have to be soft-hearted towards you. And Lord, as we leave this place, as we go out into the world this week and we face the enemy of the flesh, the enemy of the world, the enemy of the devil, we we go about all the things that we go about, would you protect us? Would Would you keep us watchful? And Lord, we do pray for revival. We know that it has to start within the house of God first. Lord, if there's no repentance here among us, how can we ever expect there to be repentance in the culture? So Lord, if you see so fit as to visit us with the divine interruption of revival, we would love that. Would you make our hearts ready for it, if you so desire? Would you make us dependent? Would you make us humble? Would you make us utterly in love with you and your grace? Father, do something different. Shake us out of our sleep. Shake us out of our comfort. Help us to be prepared for whatever comes down the pike in culture. As the days get more evil and as the the world gets more antagonistic, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be a light. Help us to be supportive of one another, Lord. Help us to be a true body of Christ. Help us to love one another, Lord. Help help the love between us to grow. Lord, help us to be faithful in our giving and tithing. Lord, help us to be faithful in hospitality and love and encouragement, in our worship and our evangelism. Lord, all the areas of our church that we need to be faithful. Lord, give us that strength to do it. We come humbly as your people on this Lord's day. And I'm just going to ask us, maybe you've never done this in church before, but I think it's important. Let's just say the Lord's Prayer together out loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.